Acts of the Apostles, chapter 7, Stephen's Defense. The two charges leveled against Stephen were that he taught what they considered to be blasphemy. One, Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy the temple, and two, he shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. In answering these charges, Stephen gave a brilliant defence, in which he skilfully turned the tables on the council and charged them with murder. His charges could not be denied. They could only be met by yet another murder. The length of this speech shows how important it was, and, since Luke has recorded it in some detail for our learning, how important its lessons are for us. Briefly, Stephen said that Abraham was called before the law was given or a temple built. Therefore, neither law nor temple was essential to acceptable worship. Furthermore, God had raised up Joseph and Moses to deliver his people. But Israel had rejected them. In these last days, God had raised up his son as a deliverer, and they had rejected him too. Acceptable worship had been offered to God in the wilderness before the temple was made. Therefore, neither tabernacle nor temple was necessary to worship the Creator, who fills heaven and earth, and therefore cannot be contained in the building something Solomon acknowledged, but they did not see 1 Kings 8 verse 27. Not only so, but David, who found favour with God, was forbidden to build a temple. Why, then, was it so important? Even in the Promised Land their fathers had persecuted the prophets God had sent. In rejecting Jesus they were continuing in the same evil. In fact, the law had never been kept by the nation. Now, in their rejection of Jesus Christ and his message, they were following the national tray of unbelief. In this speech, Stephen, though he did use some detail in his argument, chiefly concentrated on a broad overview of Israel's history. Like the council who charged Stephen, it is possible to lose sight of where we're going if a broad view of the Scriptures, with its strong exhortations and warnings, is not kept in mind when looking at details. Acts chapter 7, verses 1 to 8 The Witness of Abraham The toleration established by Gamaliel was now reversed. Antagonism was inevitable, for Stephen had evidently been arraigned for teaching the doctrine that the Mosaic heavens and earth were about to perish. But Psalm 102, verse 25 to 28, had said, As a vesture thou shalt change them, and they shall be changed. There was now a new covenant in Jesus Christ, who had confirmed the promises made unto the fathers, as Paul wrote in Romans 15, verse 8. 
Both temple and law were obsolete, as Jesus had taught the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, when he said, The hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. True worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. John 4, verse 21 to 24. Stephen knew that justice would not prevail, but he started respectfully by addressing the councillors, men, brethren and fathers. He continued, no doubt, because his face shone like an angel's, by saying, The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham. In the past, the glory was the visible evidence that God was present in the midst of his people. But the indwelling, the Shekinah glory, was not present in Herod's temple. Stephen's words reminded his listeners that God's covenant with Abraham has priority over the law that came afterwards. The God of glory appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia before he came to Haran. So God calls men and women independently of land, law or temple. Note, too, that it was in Mesopotamia that Ezekiel had seen visions of glory, the cherubim in Ezekiel chapter 1. At this point we should realise that Luke is giving us the substance of Stephen's speech, leaving us to work out the inferences for ourselves, much in the same way that Jesus spoke in parables. As Daniel said, The wise shall understand. Abraham received two calls. The first when he was beyond the Euphrates at Ur of the Chaldees where the Lord had said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, Genesis 12 verse 1. And the second at Haran where God said, I will make of thee a great nation, in Genesis 12 verse 2 and 3. Verse 4 continues, From thence, or the Greek word means afterwards, as in chapter 13, verse 21, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land. That is, Abraham removed from Haran to the land of the Philistines, Genesis 21, verse 34, and from there to Hebron, Genesis 23, verse 1 and 2. The land had been promised to Abram, but he had not received the inheritance by the time of his death, though he did have a seed in Isaac. Nor were Israel to meddle with Esau's inheritance in Mount Seir when they arrived at the borders of the land, Deuteronomy 2 verse 5. Nevertheless, God's promise given before the law cannot fail. God has a future purpose with Abraham which is still to be fulfilled. And a promise is not by law. Genesis 22 verse 16. Stephen then says that Abram's seed must sojourn in the strange land for 400 years, during which time they would be brought into bondage. But Exodus 12 verse 40 says not 400 but 
430 years. Yes, it was 430 years from the promise to the giving of the law through Moses. However, this promise was given 30 years before Isaac was born. So Stephen's 400 years from Isaac is correct. It was God who guided Abraham's seed into Egypt where their bondage began. Eventually, following God's judgment on Egypt by ten devastating plagues, Israel were delivered and entered into the wilderness of sin to serve me, that is God, at Sinai. The record says, serve me, in contrast to they shall serve the Egyptians. Genesis 15, verse 14. The God of glory who had led them into Egypt was no longer in Egypt. He was now in the wilderness where his glory appeared to them in this place, the mountain of Sinai, not Jerusalem, Exodus 3, verse 12. Stephen's point is that Israel worshipped at Sinai before the law was given or temple built. Are they then so essential to divine worship? Even the covenant of circumcision was not after the law, but of the covenant that God made with Abraham long before the law was given. Genesis 17 verse 11 and John 7 verse 22 to 24. Acts chapter 7 verses 9 to 16, the witness of Joseph. Stephen continues by reminding the counsel of Joseph. He says, God was with him. Where? In prison in Egypt, and not with his brethren in the land of promise. You get this in Genesis 39, verse 2, verse 21, and verse 23. So God exalted Joseph to rulership over Jews and Gentiles in Egypt, although he was despised and rejected of men. Jesus Christ is higher than Joseph or Pharaoh. He is Emmanuel, for God was with him, as Nicodemus admitted in Matthew 1.23 and John 3 verse 2. Therefore divine favour is independent of law or place. This was something that Saul of Tarsus, an unbelieving witness at Stephen's trial, was to learn several years later by his own experience of prison in Rome as the Apostle Paul in the second of Timothy 3, verse 11 to 12. Meanwhile, there was a famine in the land where the patriarchs lived. But there was corn in Egypt that Joseph, acting on God's advice, had carefully stored in silos. There Joseph's brethren came and bowed down to him, and on their second visit he was made known to them. It will be at another time of national crisis that Israel will bow down to Christ whom they rejected, and on this second occasion he will make himself known to them, and every eye, that is every eye of Israel, shall see him, Isaiah 40 verse 5 and Revelation 1 verse 7. 
So Jacob went down into Egypt with a total of 75 souls. Now this number has caused considerable discussion because Genesis says 70 souls in Genesis 46.27 and other places. However, Jacob's children, grandchildren and great-grandchildren numbered 66. We read in Genesis 46, verse 8 to 26. When we add to the 66 who came out of Jacob's loins, the nine wives of Jacob's sons, notice that the wives of Judah and Simeon were dead by this time, then Stephen's count of 75 is also correct. 66 came out of Jacob's loins, and nine were his son's wives. Significantly, their lives were preserved and multiplied where? In Egypt, not in the land. Therefore, God's blessing is not dependent on this place. Genesis records that Abraham built an altar at Shechem, or Sikkim. To do so, he must have bought a portion of land there. Sikkim means portion, as Stephen confirms. In Abraham's absence, the former owners had subsequently reclaimed this land. Years later, Jacob recovered this plot of land that his grandfather had bought, and here the fathers were carried over into Shechem and buried. Genesis 48 verse 22. So there is no special sanctity in the land itself for the fathers, though buried in despised Samaria, are still in God's purpose. Acts chapter 7 verse 20 to 41. The witness of Moses. Moses is still considered by the Jews to be the greatest man that ever lived. And Stephen, being accused of teaching that Jesus would change the customs Moses had given them, spoke at length about him. Moses was born when the Hebrews were in dire dis or great distress, not only because of their bondage, but because all male children at birth must be cast into the river where crocodiles lurked. By faith, Amram and Jochebed hid Moses for three months because he was exceeding fair. The margin says, from Exodus 2 verse 12, fair to God. They believed the promises and were not afraid of the king's commandment, Hebrews 11 verse 23. And so the deliverer they admired was born in Egypt and brought up not in the temple but in Pharaoh's court by Pharaoh's daughter as her own son. As a result, Moses became learned not in the Jews' law but in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. At this time, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel, with the intention of delivering them. But their fathers rejected him, exposing him to Pharaoh's vengeance because he had killed an Egyptian. Jesus of Nazareth, the prophet like unto Moses, 
Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 and 18, also was a prophet mighty indeed and in word before God and all the people, whom the chief priests and rulers delivered to death, Luke 24, verse 19 to 29. Though Moses' age is not explicitly stated in Exodus, Stephen says he was 40 years old when he visited his brethren, Acts 7, verse 23. This is implied in the phrase, when Moses was grown, that is, came of age, Exodus 2, verse 11, and 14 to 15. Moses supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. First he killed an Egyptian, then next day two Hebrews fought over whether they should follow Moses or not. For when Moses separated them, the one said to him, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Wilt thou kill me as thou killest the Egyptian yesterday? Then Moses fled at this saying. His attempt to spark a revolt had failed. The time was not yet right for the people's deliverance, for neither they nor Moses were spiritually prepared for that momentous event. After so many years in Egypt, Moses' brethren had lost faith and worshipped Egypt's idols, we find in Joshua 24, verse 14. The council were Stephen's brethren, he said. But the simple lessons of God's word are not so easily learned where there is self-righteous pride instead of meekness. Because his brethren rejected Moses, they had to wait another 40 years for Yahweh to send him again. God, who made both Moses and Jesus leader over them, will send Jesus Christ again to deliver his people of Israel when they are finally humbled with no longer a stony heart, but an heart of flesh. But the council's attitude to the prophet like unto Moses was, Who made thee a judge and a ruler over us? Moses fled as a stranger to Midian, where he married Zipporah, one of Jethro's daughters, who bore him Gershom and Eliezer. After forty years, Yahweh appeared to Moses in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. The holy ground was not in Herod's temple, it was in a bush. For when uh, Yahweh appeared to Moses, saying, I am the God of thy fathers, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This extraordinary apocalypse occurred when Moses was in exile from his own people in the wilderness of Midian in all places. An even greater apocalypse came in the Lord Jesus Christ, whom they slew, but as Peter said, God hath raised him up. Thus Moses, the lawgiver, who trembled and durst not behold, had revealed to him that Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, had a larger purpose than the Mosaic Covenant. 
he would reveal himself in another and greater one to come, as Peter had earlier said to them. The God of our fathers hath glorified his Son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied, linking God's covenant with the fathers to the new covenant in Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 3 verse 13 to 15. This Moses, whom they had refused as a ruler and judge, God sent him to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. And yet for all the wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness forty years, that generation perished. All this occurred before the temple was built. Now, says Stephen, a new dispensation is beginning after the type of Moses and to which Moses himself looked forward, as we see in Hebrews 11, verse 24 to 27. Their whole history shows God's dealings with Israel did not depend upon the law or the land. Their future did not depend upon them either. There has to be another deliverer, for did not Moses speak of another prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you? Stephen forces home his point. This is he that was in the ecclesia in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai, and with our fathers, who received the lively oracles to give unto us, to whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust him from them, and in their hearts turn back again into Egypt. Psalm 22 says, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the ecclesia will I praise thee. Jesus Christ, who is now with his ecclesia in the political wilderness, will become God's appointed ruler and a deliverer when he comes again. Him shall ye hear, as their fathers had finally heard Moses on his return. At Sinai, Moses had received the lively, the living oracles. Jesus, as mediator of the new covenant, and greater than Moses, has given us the living word of God to direct our faith. Galatians 3, 19-20 don't be like your fathers who turned back to Egypt in their hearts, in effect saying, We have no king but Caesar. But look forward to Jesus who is the fulfilment of the name. I will be who I will be, revealed at the bush. In rejecting Yahweh and his servant Moses, Israel pressured Aaron into making a golden calf such as was worshipped in Egypt, but had not saved the Egyptians from Yahweh's judgments. Apparently, this was to be the first of a set of gods, though Aaron tried to confine them to one in Exodus 32, verse 1 and verse 4. They offered sacrifice unto the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Now their children rejoiced in Herod's temple, which was also the work of their own hands, and charged Stephen with blasphemy. 
And though Sinai was covered in smoke before them in the wilderness, the people said, This Moses, in contempt. Just as Stephen's accusers had said, This Jesus. Acts 6 verse 14. They said they knew not what had become of Moses, though they knew he had ascended the mount. The council knew not what had become of Jesus, though all the evidence showed he was in heaven, Acts 2.33. But Moses did come again and witness their shame, and so will Jesus. Acts 7 verse 42 to 50, the witness of the prophets. Israel continued to be rebellious, even in the land, until God gave them up to worship the host of heaven. Stephen cites Amos some five hundred years later to prove his point. Had they offered to him slain beasts and sacrifices forty years in the wilderness? No, they had not. In fact, they superseded divine law by their idolatrous worship of Moloch and Rempham. Because of their folly, Amos had said they would be taken beyond Damascus. But Stephen, adding Jeremiah's testimony, says, beyond Babylon, implying even beyond great Babylon, which is Rome. Acts 5, verse 25 to 27, and Jeremiah 20, verse 4 to 6. And you'll find Revelation 18, verse 10 as well. Babylon was where Abraham, their father, came from. Their history constituted a serious warning that failure to observe God's law would bring such severe judgment upon them that they would be taken further away from the land than had been their beginning. Their fathers built a tabernacle of witness to point forward to one to come which Joshua brought into the land. And since Joshua brought them in, then they didn't receive the inheritance by Moses or Moses' law. Therefore the law must pass for something better that will bring the inheritance. In his epistle to the Hebrews, Paul follows Stephen's argument when he says that Joshua did not give them the inheritance. The true rest in the margin, the keeping of a Sabbath, waits for another Joshua or Jesus to give them. He is the true successor to Moses. Hebrews 4 verses 6 to 11. And in any case, the tabernacle was only ever a copy, a pattern or type of the heavenly things shown to Moses in the mount. Paul says so in Hebrews 8 verse 5 and Hebrews 9 verse 23 to 24. Then, when Israel was settled in the land, David the man after God's own heart wanted to build God a temple, but he was prevented. Solomon his son built it. The line of Stephen's reasoning is that if there could be a change from tabernacle to temple, then there could be another change, for the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? 
Hath not my hand made all these things? No. God would look to him that is of a poor and contrite spirit, and trembled at his word, which this counsel would never do. Isaiah 66, verse 1 and 2. Not only so, but Solomon's temple wasn't final either, for it was destroyed. Even Solomon, its builder, recognised the truth in his prayer that the consecration of the temple, in 1 Kings 8, verse 27, We cannot make a house for God out of what he has provided, only out of what we ourselves can give. God's dwelling place is not in a material temple, but in men and women who tremble at his word. These are the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, and not man, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, verses 19 to 22 and Hebrews 8, verse 2. They clung to a temporal temple and the shadow of things to come, and not to the body which is of Christ. Colossians 2, verses 16 to 17. Acts chapter 7, verses 51 to 53. Stephen's accusation. At this stage, it had become obvious to Stephen that there was no point in continuing because the council was enraged. Stephen's skilful defence had developed into an account of the unbelief of their fathers and an exposition of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Knowing that the council were determined to silence him, he indicts them of the murder of the just one. Citing the law which they profess to respect, Stephen calls them stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, Deuteronomy 10 verse 16. Then, referring to Isaiah, he says, Ye do always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do ye. From Isaiah 63, verse 9 to 10. If they rejected the words of the inspired prophets, how could they receive the more complete revelation of heavenly things through God's Son and His prophets? John 3, verse 12. He challenged which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? There could be no answer, because this was the Spirit's own testimony against them and their fathers. The second of Chronicles 26, verse 16, and Matthew 23, verse 34 to 37. They had slain those who spoke of the coming of the Just One, and when this sinless one came, who alone in all history had fully kept the law, they had betrayed and murdered him. They had accused Stephen of blasphemy in saying the law would be changed. But though it was a decree or order, the authorised version, disposition or ordinance, Romans 13 verse 2, a decree or order of angels, even they themselves had not kept it. This was only too true, and they knew it. We see then that Stephen made three serious counter-charges, namely, one, resisting the Holy Spirit, two, murder of the just one, three, 
not keeping the law. Acts chapter 7 verses 54 to 60 The Death of Stephen Cut to the heart, not pricked as in 2 verse 37, they cast off all restraint. Stephen, not fearing the wrath of the council, rose above the immediate threat and looked steadfastly up into heaven. There he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. His Lord was not sitting as we might have expected, but standing in anger ready to judge these wicked men. For he shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those that condemn his soul, says Psalm 109, verse 29 to 31. The way into the fellowship of heaven was open, for the veil had been rent from the top to the bottom at the death of Jesus. Jacob had also seen heaven open in vision, and the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Genesis 28, verse 12. Son of Man is the title of the one who has the authority to execute judgment and is given dominion over the nations. Daniel 7, 13 to 14. The heavens opened is indisputable proof that Jesus is Messiah and God's appointed high priest in the most holy at the right hand of the Most High. The blind now stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. So confirming Stephen's final point in verse 51. The false witnesses cast the first stones as the law required, the Lord of Deuteronomy 17 verse 7. What were they thinking? How did they feel? Perhaps their consciences had been seared with a hot iron like the Catholic inquisitors of later Christian history. In his final moments, Stephen was able to call upon God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, which is his life. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7. And then, kneeling down in the attitude of prayer, he cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. His words echoed those of his Lord, except that Stephen did not say, For they know not what they do. For now they did. No. Oh, Stephen, rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets that were before you. Matthew 5, verse 11 and 12. And so ends another sad chapter in Israel's history.